Welcome! Welcome back to the comics course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's Remote Education Program, Literature 209, a.k.a. Graphical Literature and Society and History, better known as the comics course. I am your ever-present, except when I'm not, Professor, Professor Hamby, along with my ever-suffering T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Yes, uh... It has been a hot minute since we've been here, a couple weeks actually, because things got weird, which, you know, you'd think we'd be used to, but somehow we're not. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details of why we had to skip uh, recording lectures for a couple weeks, but things did in fact get pretty crazy. And unfortunately, things are not back to normal. I am still teaching Dr. Feckett's classes. Um, it turns out that even though he attacked me with a hatchet, and is now on the run from the FBI after failing to appear for a court appearance. He also apparently got a hold of his fiancée, and last I heard they were in Tijuana somewhere. Um, it turns out that is actually not cause for being fired from Miskatonic University, assaulting another professor. Uh, apparently felonies against co-workers are not in the code of conduct at all, which frankly explains quite a few things about my beloved alma mater. But we're going to pass on all that right now, and we're going to focus on what we're here for, which is to talk about graphic literature, or as Alan Moore would prefer to call it, comics. Yes, he does. He hates the term graphic novel. He likes to call things comics. Uh, I am going to drop a little bit of information about it first. Comicscourse.org is our website. I'm slowly getting it looking a little nicer. Comicscourse.captivate.fm is where you can grab the podcasts, and I'm making lists. I will make a listening list for From Hell as well. My Twitter is Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. I will be posting images of From Hell and other works as I read them and start using it more. And I like to be transparent with what we do to produce the podcast version of these lectures. So a little bit of information. Uh, one... You may hear it. We have a new background. I thought we needed something slightly on the creepy side for From Hell. And I've put down a carpet here in my office. It is not wall-to-wall, -wall, though, and I grossly underestimated how big a carpet I'd need. But it was cheap, and that was one of the major factors. But I have hard floors in my office, and I've worried about echoing. So I'll be putting down more carpet to reduce potential echoes. So anything else we need to cover, Rowan? I mean, I'm sure students want to know when they're going to get their grades and stuff, but I don't honestly care about that. Um, why are you not even boosting my grades? Because they want their grades. <laughs> well, you're not taking my class. Although, you know, I could probably arrange an exchange with another professor. Um, which, I, I, that's a joke, people. I wouldn't do that. That would violate the ethics code and get me fired. Unlike my boss trying to chop my foot off with a meat cleaver. It's just a flesh wound. I had spiders growing in it. It was not a flesh wound. It, I mean, it happens, of course. I mean, we all know what it's like to have spiders growing out of our flesh. But still, it's not pleasant. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we're going to start from hell. Now, I decided that there was so much to talk about. And I've done lectures on from hell before. Um... And there's so much ancillary information. I decided that we would do our first session without actually talking about the comic itself. But 
well, that's not entirely true because we are going to talk about it, but we're going to talk around it. We're not going to talk about the content within the comic so much as information that leads up to it. Now, this does not mean that these topics won't come up during the podcasts while we talk about From Hell, but I thought rather than jumping around randomly with the verbal equivalent of constant footnotes, it would be beneficial to give some of this up front. So, first I'm going to talk about the creators of it a little bit, and the history of it as a creative work, and then I'm going to talk about the setting, because the setting is a whole character here. And unlike works that are mostly fictional, From Hell is actually mostly real, although certainly very critical fictional components to it. So... Right, and Alan Moore took as his inspiration something that he knows is not true, but thought would make a fun story to write, mm -hmm. and then did lots of research to fill in the details around it as accurately as possible. So let's start with Alan Moore. Uh, for those who don't know the name Alan Moore, he is a Scottish writer, comic book writer. He's extremely successful which means that according to UK law, he's officially British now. Because if you're Scottish or Welsh and extremely successful, you then become British, according to the British. I don't know how that works, but I've been assured by British friends that is, in fact, what happens. Magic. Uh, I suspect he doesn't agree. Uh, interestingly, the artist on this title, Eddie Campbell, is also of Scottish origins, although he has also lived in Australia, and currently lives in the United States, in Chicago. Uh, meanwhile, Alan Moore is living in some sort of castle or something in Scotland. They've got lots of castles in Scotland. Um. <laughs> but Alan Moore, okay, so Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, in fact, both came up in the late 70s in the British comic scene. Now, Alan Moore kind of made his initial impact on some British titles that are well-known, like 2000 AD uh, and Warrior. 2000 AD is probably best known to American readers as the source of Judge Dredd as a character. As we head into the 1980s, though, he began doing work for Marvel UK. For those who don't know, Marvel UK was legally a distinct company from Marvel itself in most ways. They basically repackaged often black and white versions of Marvel comics and then occasionally slid new original material in there. And they started hiring Alan Moore. Now, by the early 80s, Jeanette Kahn had taken stock at DC and said, I want writers. I want writers who kick ass. I want writers who tell stories. I want DC to be the home of stories. And she decided that you had to break out of your traditional talent pools to find that. So she looked across the pond, and Alan Moore was one of those. Alan Moore's creations included absolute classics like Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, essentially the first actual Superman death story, kind of, sort of, absolute classic happening in the last days of Crisis on Infinite Earths. He wrote... Um, the Killing Joke, uh, which was a Batman graphic novel 
which went to a very dark place and involved the paralyzation of Barbara Gordon, a.k.a. Batgirl and later Oracle, which they've undone in recent years because apparently you can't be both a hero and in a wheelchair, despite the fact that she was ridden for decades as a completely kick-ass superhero in a wheelchair using her mind. Um, but apparently that didn't sell in the way they wanted. Not that Batgirl's titles have ever been super high selling. And he helped uh, expand the popularity of the Swamp Thing character, gave it a lot more depth, and... Sorry about that, folks. Uh, we had a slight disturbance. The power flickered, and there was an explosion of orange light over at the science building. Again. Well, you know, I knew when they took that grant money from Elon Musk, it was going to be a bad thing. Yeah. I just knew it. I am too. Anyway, so Alan Moore, V for Vendetta, uh, Watchmen. Um, uh, v for Vendetta came a little bit later. But he had done The Killing Joe. He, he had done these independent comics in... Uh, England, and he worked for Marvel UK. He did some seminal stuff for DC, including uh, The Killing Joke and Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. And then he wrote Watchmen. And Watchmen essentially set off a new age of the superhero comic book world where you could write things reflective of superheroes as mythology and cultural and literary figures. By And even though the masters at DC and Marvel would never let you do that with their characters, Alan Moore proved that you could put a thin disguise on them. It could be extremely profitable. It would make the lords at the corporate owners happy to not have it actually called whatever their flagship characters are. And people would still understand and follow your story. And also set off the chain of movie adaptations and all that of Alan Moore properties, which he's often hated. And in fact, he has uh, uh, required that his name be removed from projects that offended him and they didn't like. And it was a few years after Watchmen that he decided to write this very ambitious project that he titled From Hell. Now, if you are one of those people that has seen the Johnny Depp From Hell movie, I will caution you. Yes, there is a movie starring Johnny Depp. And he plays an Aberline in it who's psychic. And consumes absinthe to have visions of the murders. No, no one really does, I don't think. Um, it, it might be an okay movie. I have actually seen it. I don't recall it as being very memorable. Um, it sounds like someone wanted to write something but wanted a name that would sell. And then didn't think that the actual murders, despite having completely gripped a, a, a curiosity for a hundred plus years, weren't enough and it had to become more exciting with a psychic and visions. Yeah. <laughs> Right. 
So that's Alan Moore. He started to write from hell. And he looked around to recruit somebody to do the art. And the person he picked is Eddie Campbell. Eddie Campbell is Scottish himself. Uh, as I said, lived in Australia, the U.S. He's moved around. He's won a lot of awards, including an Eisner. Um, he's also a writer himself. He's written quite a bit of stuff, including, you may be interested in, uh, as an art person, he wrote a retrospective about art and about his approach to art. Oh. And... As they began doing From Hell Together, which was originally done in black and white and published serially in a magazine called Taboo, but the comic book failed uh, uh, when the publisher went out of business, and then later was published separately, and then later collected. And it was Eddie Campbell's publication company that later printed the initial collected editions. Although I think from I think Dark Horse has published some version as well. And there is a master collection or master edition that's been published just in the last couple of years that has it fully colored. When it was originally published, it was kind of on the trail end of the black and white mid-80s explosion. There was a period of time following the success of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when black and white comics just were like printing money. And then, of course, that collapsed. But it did lead a lot of people to being more accepting to read them than they otherwise had been, who grew up on full-color superhero comics. And From Hell was black and white. You can buy it now in the Master Collection that's colorized. I don't care for it. Maybe if that had been the initial version I would have read, I would have liked it more. Uh, and I will post comparison photos on Twitter uh, and show them in the podcast when we next meet Rowan. But... Or next time we meet for a From Hell, because the next one will actually be a uh, non-From Hell topic uh, as we talk about Tintin. But I prefer the black and white and Eddie Campbell style, which uses this pen and pencil technique where he draws these sharp, powerful lines with pen and then does shading and cross-hatching and everything with pencil. I think the black and white works better for From Hell than it being colored does. The starkness. I feel like, I feel like it all works better in black and white. Now, I'm not saying the color is bad, mm -hmm. but I have an affection for the black and white. And one of the things I love about the black and white is it forced Eddie Campbell to look at things like light and, and gruesomeness. I mean, one of the reasons Eddie Campbell was picked was that his style, which is very realistic and well, not photorealistic. I don't want to confuse people. His style isn't photorealistic in the way that, say, uh, uh, some artists are. But he feels very constrained by realism. He wants it to look like a real person. He wants it to look like real streets. And he was picked in part because his style wouldn't glorify the violence. It wouldn't escalate it. It would just be what it was. And I think the black and white works beautifully for that. Um, so that's how we ended up with From Hell. Eddie Campbell, a uh, great writer, brilliant artist in my opinion, and Alan Moore, who is a sensational figure. Um, you know, people love to talk about how he's a self-proclaimed anarchist and occultist and all these things. You can watch interviews with him where he rants on about mysticism and magic, which will become relevant as we talk about some of the motivations in From Hell. But... Then, if you listen to him long enough, he starts talking about it all as symbolism. 
And there's a point at which I'm not sure that he's not just pulling people's legs. But but if he is, he plays a long game with it, and kind of goes back and forth. And maybe I, half trolling, half real. Maybe, maybe. That could well be. I mean, because I don't think he thinks he's actually summoning spirits. Mm-hmm. But but he but but he may feel there's something real there even if it's not what people traditionally associate with occultism, some sort of spiritual experience or something. And that will become relevant as we talk about some of the character motivations in From Hell. So what is From Hell? Uh, From Hell is a story of Jack the Ripper. If you're a Ripperologist, welcome! I love love Ripperology. Ever since I was a teenager, pre-internet, Um, I devoured books on Jack the Ripper, and now, with the huge resources available, I just soak them up. Mm -hmm. I I, I love everything about Jack the Ripper. I do not believe we will ever solve it. There are too many problems to keep us from solving it. But it's almost the perfect set of crimes. They were gruesome, they were brutal, and they happened in a time that we have tons of information about. And tons recorded. But little physical evidence. Right. It happened, you know, 30 years later, police procedures had improved. We might still have reliable DNA stored in a vault somewhere. If it happened just a few years later, we might actually be able to catch the guy. But it happened at just the right time where we have lots of information, records were kept, such and such, but physiology wasn't very advanced. Yeah. And 30 years before... Newspapers weren't as big, the story wouldn't have spread as much, the sensationalism wouldn't have been as big, um, there wouldn't have been as much reason for people to write fake letters. I mean, so it happened right at that sweet spot to where we have so much to consume for it, but realistically, none of it's really useful for solving anything. <laughs> I, I mean, the story is, 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 is amazing and something to sink your teeth into. Um, now, that hasn't kept people from wanting to claim they've solved it, of course. And some of it has just been pretty pathetic in attempts to solve it, in my opinion, uh, including the one we're going to talk about, which is Stephen Knight's 1975 book, I think. Maybe it was 76, but I think 75. Uh, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. Now... Stephen Knight was not the first one to come up with the theory that the royal family was somehow involved in the murders. That theory had come around a few times before and really been popularized, I think, in the early 70s. But what Stephen Knight did was he found this guy named Joseph Gorman. And Joseph Gorman, who sometimes called himself Joseph Sickert, claimed that his grandmother had been one of the first girls and had had a baby with the crown prince of England and that was his mother and it had been and that the murders were partially arranged with with the artist Walter Siskert in order to cover up the prince's wedding and having a child with a commoner. 
and that the artist then later married the daughter, which is why Joseph Gorman was actually Joseph Siskert, and if it had been true, his mother would be the legitimate Queen of England, and he would be in line for the throne. Now, he later admitted it was a hoax and a fraud, long after the book was published and drew a lot of attention. Right, presumably. And the whole thing was just ridiculous. I mean, even by the 1970s, uh, they probably could have done something with at least his blood work to determine that he wasn't, you know, descended from the royal family. Although maybe not. I don't know how many descendants there are of Queen Victoria. She was the last of her house, and a new royal house took over after her. Um, but I'm, I'm not a huge Anglophile. I don't follow the British royal family much, but there are a lot of people that do. And of course there's a mystique associated with the royal family. Uh, I think in this day and age, actually Americans are, are, are more obsessed with it than the British are. Uh, right. But there are British who are still obsessed with the royal family, certainly. And, uh, back then even more so. And the... The idea, the sensationalism of a royal family member involved in this horrible scandal was just too appealing to them. Mm -hmm. Too appealing. So people jumped all over it. So this was the book that Alan Moore picked up. And he knew it was bullshit, but he read it and he went, there's a neat story to write here, using this as the basis. So let's be very clear. The actual plot, because Alan Moore borrows uh, Siskert the Artist, he borrows a secret relationship from the Crown Prince, he borrows the involvement of Dr. William Gull, and he puts additional elements in all this that wasn't in the... Uh, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution book by Stephen King. Stephen King? Stephen King. Am I misremembering a name? I might be. I don't care. Sorry, it's been a long day, folks. It's been a very long day. Uh, and, yeah, so he, he knows it's bullshit, but he thought it'd be a cool story. And that's where he was coming from when he wrote it. So let's talk about London, 1888. These crimes are happening. Um, usually when we talk about a lot of graphic literature, the place, the time, these are factors that influence the writing and influence how we understand the story. But here, all of this are characters in their own right. The setting, the time, the culture, the attitude, all of it. And I, I want to tell people, if their idea of what London is, is from a, you know, some movie adaptations of A Christmas Carol or Sherlock Holmes stories, take all of that and... and throw it out the well, no, I was going to say, take that and ramp it up. Mm -hmm. And yeah, throw parts of it out the window. Because what you see very often, I mean, you see the poor people in the streets. That's true. You see the coal smoke from the industrialization. That's true. What you don't usually see in those things is that it was a bustling metropolis. People think somehow that the behavior of metropolis 
is a modern thing. You know, that you go to New York, the city that never sleeps, and it's the only city that never sleeps. I hate to break it to you people, every big city never sleeps. London, New York, Houston, uh, Los Angeles, Tokyo, Paris, uh, plenty of other places, Shanghai. You know, these big cities don't sleep. And London was a big city in 1888. And this is part of what influences what we know about the Ripper murders, because there were people awake at 2 a.m. There were people doing deliveries at 2.30 a.m. There were people used to the movements of other people at those times. There were people awake at all hours of the day and night. Coming and going from jobs. I mean, ports ran 24 hours a day unloading ships. Right. And we know some of what these places looked like. Now, unfortunately, you can't go on Google Maps today and find these places. Uh, Whitechapel is very different now. In fact, I, my understanding is it's kind of a little bit of a bourgeoisie, uh, a ritzy, upscale, yuppie area now. Uh, and, and it's been so long that some of those streets are literally just gone. I mean, the streets don't even exist anymore as new blocks have been laid down and all that. But there are some uh, markers, and there are places you can go online, and they'll even take you to, like, Google uh, street photos of those places. So you can be like, okay, it's an office building now, but this is where such and such was murdered. And some of them are still upkept. I know they do tours and stuff. Yeah, although some of the places were built later and mm -hmm. are just for tourists. But 1888, uh, by this point, Britain was going through a ton of changes. The population of the country had more than doubled in the last century. Industrialization was huge, of course, bringing with it lots of other problems, including environmental with all the coal smoke. Uh, technology was booming, and the east end of London, which is where Whitechapel was, had become essentially a Jewish... Not a ghetto, because it wasn't enclosed and they were forced in there, but it was heavily, heavily Jewish. It was essentially a Jewish neighborhood. Uh, now, why had this happened? Well, frankly, Jews have been fleeing what we would now call Eastern Europe and Russia. Keep in mind, the, those borders were much more porous than they are now, and the Russian Tsar in the early 1880s, had been assassinated and replaced, he had been fairly tolerant of non-Christians, but the new ones were not. And so from 1881 onwards, we saw Jews, especially from places like Hungary and Poland, fleeing Europe, and quite a few ended up in England. So yes, those people who believe that anti-Semitism somehow originated with the Nazis in the 1930s, no, anti-Semitism goes way, way back, uh, pre-Middle Ages, through the Middle Ages, continuing modern problem. And by 1888, the East End of London was filled with synagogues, uh, Jewish tailoring shops, uh, doing all kinds of craft work, including butchers, that will come up in the story later too, uh, including, you know, Yiddish-speaking schools. So, and, of course, when you have a big influx of people, especially people that the native Christians uh, distrust and have this sort of antagonism for, as well as being uh, uh, accused of doing things like 
taken our jobs. I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, so there was a lot of hostility towards the Jews who had come into the country and were living there now, uh, many of whom had been there for quite a long time. Oh, yeah, and I mentioned Poland. Uh, they were coming from Germany also, lots from Germany. So history repeats itself, right? Now, while all this is happening, poverty is a major problem in the East End. But the middle class is growing. Nobility is gone. The Industrial Revolution's in full swing. And there's a growing middle class. So there's growing numbers of shops and entertainment. There's a growing number, class of people like artists who don't necessarily need patrons from the nobility anymore. And well-to-do people may rub elbows with the nobility. That will come into play as we talk about Jack the Ripper too. Because this story idea of having to cover something up can't be done purely by the nobility anymore. It involves others, and those characters will become important to the story. So, I do want to mention very quickly the Queen of England. Uh, Queen Victoria, she passed away in 1901, about 13 years after the events in Whitechapel. She was the longest-running uh, English regent at the time. I think she actually still is, technically. I think Queen Elizabeth II uh, has another year or two to match Queen Victoria's reign. Yeah. Uh, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, I think that's correct. But, but I'm going to throw a few things out here for people. First of all, the conspiracy theory about the royal family, in, in case you believe it in relationship to Jack the Ripper, is absurd on a number of levels. Uh, one of the things that people say, of course, is this was all masterminded by Queen Victoria. She let it up, blah, 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 you know, or at least she consented to it. Point of fact, um, her staff keep diaries and books. They keep copies of the letters that she sends and many of them that she receives. We have lots of documentation about her daily life. There is nothing even vaguely implicative in there anywhere that she was involved in any sort of conspiracy or cover-up. In fact, what we have are letters that she wrote to the chief of police and to the secretary of state saying, why don't you have more police in Whitechapel? Why can't we solve this as a manpower thing? Why can't we flood the streets and have bobbies on every police quarter and capture this guy? She was urging them to do more. Um, and for good reason. And again, we'll talk about this over the course of From Hell, but this captured the public's imagination and their imagination was that the cops were completely incompetent, which they were. Uh, it can be a little, yeah, it, it's complicated. It, it's a little unfair to call the police completely incompetent. Although Lord knows there were things that happened in the course of the investigation that did not give the public any confidence in them for good reason <laughs> well that happened later that happened after but that is one of the reasons we can't solve some things now was when the case was eventually closed they had no concept of material retainment for future investigations police were welcome to just take things as souvenirs but we don't even know where the famous letters are or if they're destroyed right we have Ironically, some photographs of some of them, some things that we don't have the originals of. 
Uh, but there are some things that people have shown up with out of their attics and literally said, this is the scarf that Mary Kelly was wearing when they found her body and it has DNA in it and we can solve the murders with it. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying this was in the police inventory and then when they were throwing stuff out, a copper took it as a souvenir and then he gave it to his kid who gave it to their kid and it sat in the attic. So it's had how much potential cross-contamination over a century plus? And we can't even really confirm, confirm it, was it? I, it's useless. Yeah. Uh, and, and for those of you out there who are saying, wow, they could do, you know, like uh, uh, a carbon life thing to distinguish the older DNA on it from newer. Okay. You've watched too many Jurassic Park films and stuff. Uh, things like isotope decay and half-life have margins of errors in, the, in, in millions of years. That's why when they talk about things like uh, uh, fossils, they're like, it came from this era, which was 200 million years long because they can't narrow it down. <laughs> you can't narrow things down with decay to a year or, or a decade. It doesn't work. But fossils could be hundreds of years apart. We don't know, and we can't know. Right. And when you pull DNA from things, a lot of times DNA is just unusable, especially if it has not been stored in a way to help preserve it. And isolate them and put them in controlled freezers and all this kind of thing. I mean, right. When we dig up a dead body that's been in the ground, A, being in the ground can help preserve it. B, it's been in a box that may help preserve it. It has less temperature variation that way. And then they're still not sure out of a whole body they can get usable DNA out of it. They've gotten way better. But what the think? What the heck do you think they're going to do with a scarf that's been sitting in somebody's attic for seventy years? Who knows how many people have worn it and played with it and touched it and handled it? And you think that they're going to get usable skin cells off that? Yeah. Even if they can get usable skin cells off it, they can't prove they were Mary Kelly's skin cells. <laughs> we don't have her DNA. So we're never going to solve this. It's all done. It's all gone. The police uh, made some major mistakes in the investigation and did some things that just made them look like idiots. And kind of permanently damaged uh, the image of the place for hundreds of years. Well, it hasn't been hundreds yeah. of years since then yet. But for a couple years. For decades, mm -hmm. certainly. Uh, and we still have newspaper comics and stuff from the time period making fun of them. In fact, I talked about one of them in our very first lecture uh, where the police are stumbling around blindly with a blindfold and can't see all the ruffians around him. But this is the world of the time. And some of these missteps that the police made were frankly because the population were women and it was the East End of London. And I want to go through a few things that happened in 1888 to help give you a picture of the time period um, and how different it was from how you may think of London today. March 23rd. This is all in 1888. I'm going to go chronologically. March 23rd, 
the a meeting was called for the establishment of the football league. Now we think of British football as an absolute cornerstone of British life, but they're just now starting to organize it as a league. Nobody was running around in Man U shirts, screaming the Fighting Reds yet, or singing, you know, uh, uh, Sheena Easton songs. Reference to the movie Euro Trip for those who haven't seen it. Uh, just two days after that, March 25th, they opened an international congress for women's rights led by Susan B. Anthony in Washington, D.C. Now, this isn't London, but a, the victims were women, and issues with women both led to the crimes and are a big factor in police response. So think about this. This was the year that women were just starting to organize and discuss pushing for the right to vote, for suffrage and things like that. This was very early on. Now, some women did have jobs, but the jobs available to women were far and few in between. Things like seamstress, clothes washing, maids, and they often didn't pay well at all. So, of course, a lot of women turned to the oldest profession on earth, sex work. Um, it was a way to make money, and it was a way they could make money. And some women who had reputable jobs may have still done a little bit of sex work on the side. Which brings us up to Emma Smith. She was a London prostitute who, earlier in 1888, was attacked by three men in Whitechapel. Now, she has sometimes been accused... Accused isn't the right word here. She has sometimes been identified as, well, maybe she was the first Jack the Ripper victim. No. Uh, the details of the crime are pretty hideous. I'm not going to go over them right here. It's not necessary. But she was attacked by three men who were thugs. It wasn't an individual. She was beaten badly. She wasn't eviscerated or vivisected or anything like that. Um, but it does show that crime happened in Whitechapel, and it happened against women. Women were not a special class. If you have watched, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes adaptations, and the women are very prim and proper, and no man would dare raise his hands because it's not gentlemanly, that's not what life in Whitechapel was like, folks. The bitch is in your way, the bitch gets cut. That was the attitude of a lot of people. Now, we move onward to uh, June, and I thought this was interesting when I read about this. So the Bishop of Lincoln was called to account for using ritualistic practices in Anglican worship. Now, this may sound funny, but this is the great age of the Freemasons in Egyptian mysticism and all this stuff. And that's going to become relevant in From Hell when we talk about the Freemason connections that are brought up. Because, of course, Alan Moore included the Freemasons. Because if you're going to do insane batshit conspiracy theories, you might as well throw the Freemasons in. And frankly, if the upper class of British society in the 1880s had done a bizarre batshit conspiracy, Freemasonry probably was involved in some way. Well, and because they were sort of the social club of the upper class. Um, it may have had nothing to do with Freemasonry itself, except they probably talked about it while having drinks at a Freemasons meeting. Um, but there is an additional element here because of Dr. Gold's psyche and his mental state. Moving onward just a month later in July, the London Match Girl Strike of 1888. This is very famous in labor circles. 200 workers 
young girls, they were only beginning in that day and age to implement laws that children shouldn't be put to work. <coughs> and at that point, children were still working. They had started to institute laws that very young ones didn't, but, you know, and I'm not an expert on the history of labor laws, but you start talking about 13, 14, they were still going to work for 60 hours a week in the factories to help the family make ends meet. And so a bunch of girls getting together, and especially young ones, and having a strike was a big deal. And they talked about the working conditions. They got press. There was a female journalist named Annie Besant who published stories about them, and they began to talk about unionizing. So we, again, have this women can be ignored, women are this other class, and they're starting to push back, but it's the very early days of it. And then we jump up to August, August 7th. Now, this is an interesting one. In London, the body of Martha Tabram is found. Now, depending on who you ask, she's a seamstress or a prostitute. Yes, the reality is that she rented a room and she made a living as a seamstress, but she may have turned the occasional trick here and there to help make ends meet. By the way, if anybody's wondering, there's not going to be any shame on this podcast about sex work or prostitution or anything like that. You need a couple of shillings to put together to put bread in your belly? Hey, consensual deal between you and another person? That's your business. I, I'm I'm not going to fault anybody. People, there have I have seen published articles where journalists from this time period have said it is better to starve to death than to turn to an immoral sex act. I'm like, no. have you ever starved to death? <laughs> I have a feeling the guy who wrote that has never been in danger of starving to death. Yeah, I have never been in danger of starving to death either. However, I'm not stupid, and I know it would suck incredibly. Right? I've read enough about people who have almost starved to death, and I don't even like to imagine how they felt. Right. And then after that, uh, later in August, uh, August 31st, and 31st, in fact, a few weeks later, is when Marianne Nichols, the first official victim of Jack the Ripper, is found. However, the Martha Tabram... A attacker rushed in, stabbed her repeatedly, and left. And there were a lot of elements similar to Jack the Ripper. I think there's a very high chance that was the actual first Jack the Ripper attack. Mm -hmm. um, well, she probably had many physical attacks against women before finally murdering someone. Well, and we know there's a behavior with this sort of person where they escalate over time. So, I mean, a young Jack the Ripper probably tortured animals, killed animals. Uh, if he follows a typical pattern, he became a peeping Tom. Uh, it's not uncommon for serial killers to have issues with their chosen target group. Uh, sexual frustration may be a part of it, but not necessarily. Although in Jack the Ripper's case, given his victims and attacks... Yeah, I suspect he had issues with women. Uh -huh. By the way, that's another thing that people point out about Prince Albert. They're like, oh, he had syphilis. No, he didn't. His symptoms were asymptomatic with syphilis. By the the whole thing people like to say about, oh, well, four doctors 
attended his death and none of them brought up syphilis. Look, the royal family wouldn't have brought in doctors who said the crown prince died of syphilis. But his life was extremely well documented, including appearances he made, places he traveled, things he did. Syphilis has a very specific progression that takes a long time. It is not... Yes, and he did not show the symptoms. He would have had to have gotten it when he was like nine years old. And he would not have been able to do some of the things in his life that he did. So it is just not reasonable to believe that he had syphilis. But that brings us up to, whoops, August 31st, 1888, Marianne Nichols. But that's not actually where we're going to begin from hell. We're actually going to begin from hell with skipping forward in time. And then we'll come back to some events before the death of Marianne Nichols that lead up to it. Uh, I'm going to try to not to do one chapter per lecture, uh, which I have done in the past because there's so much information. I'm going to try to do about three chapters per lecture just so that we're not doing from hell for five months. Although I could talk about it for five months. I could look into that. Yeah. But, folks out there, start thinking about what you want after we're done with From Hell. Now, in two days, we'll be back, and we're going to do 1010, The Adventures of 1010 by Hergé, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. And you said you found some surprises while researching. Yeah, I will admit, and, and I'll talk about this more next time, but a little, you know, sneak peek for you guys. Um, 1010 to me is like a constant. It, it's a fact. The sky is blue. 1010 is European and has a huge following and people love it. And he's a force of right. I mean, 1010 is just there. He's, he's part of the cultural background for European comics readers. Mm-hmm. And I'd never questioned that. And I never thought a whole lot about it. 1010 to me was like Superman. He's just there and just popular for people who like him, even though I'm not particularly interested in the character. Uh, And so reading up on the origins and the life of Hergé, I found some stuff that I did not know and I thought was interesting. And I will share that. So that's in two days. Uh, Join us then. Keep reading comics. Bye.